Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's show, we're going to welcome a special guest as Baltimore Sports and Life's Stephen Loftus joins us so to give an early preview of the 2021 MLB Draft. Um, we're going to introduce introduce him in a few minutes, and before that, we're going to get into a quick discussion on uh, some of the highlights and lowlights of the last week of Orioles baseball. But first, On the Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So we're recording this on Wednesday night in what was supposed to have been the third game of the current series between the Orioles and Seattle Mariners, but that game was postponed due to uh, wet conditions here in Baltimore, so the two teams will resume tomorrow afternoon. Um, kind of been an interesting week here. We did see the Orioles get their first win at home in the second game of a doubleheader on Tuesday. But we also saw uh, a few struggles along the way. Dean Kramer not looking quite sharp in his second outing of the season. Um, so we're going to get into some of that very quickly before we bring in Steven. So, Nick, I'll start with you. What are your kind of your highlights and lowlights since we were last on the air? I mean, I guess for me, two big highlights. I'll keep it positive here. Uh, we're talking MLB draft today, so let's let's keep the mood, the spirit up a little bit. Um, Brian Mountcastle, I think, is a positive so far. He's got a five game hit, five game hitting streak, uh, eight hits in his last seven games. Um, yeah, I didn't look again today before. Well, they got a doubleheader now on Tuesday, but I mean, Ryan Mountcastle had seen the fourth highest percentage of breaking balls in all of baseball going into yesterday's game. And because he wasn't hitting those pitches and he's hitting those pitches now, he's up to like 300 batting average against breaking balls. I had a couple good hits uh, the other day against Seattle. Uh, I think it's just the strikeouts are an issue for the whole team, Mount Castle, especially, but I think with him, you know, we're talking about baby steps here. One thing at a time, uh, small improvements. And the other thing for me that stood out was Bruce Zimmerman. I mean, two good quality starts so far, both of them against Boston, pretty much nearly identical stat lines in both those starts, but you really can't complain about what he's done so far. Uh, six innings in each start, nine strikeouts, just two walks. He's going to get Seattle again tomorrow, I think. I don't know, game one or game two. I didn't look before he hopped on, but hopefully he gets Seattle again tomorrow. So, um, 
you know, he, he ranks 22nd. Looking at some of his numbers before we jumped on, he ranks 22nd in the majors right now in that called strike plus whiff rate, uh, near 32%. He's fourth in the major leagues right now in first pitch strikes, so he's getting ahead early. He's feeling confident. He looks confident. And it, it's just nice to see him start off the year pretty strong. Yeah, that is definitely a positive, and especially with the Red Sox lineup that was just killing everyone after we swept them in the opening weekend. For him to be able to shut them down the way he did was pretty impressive, Them uh, seeing him a second time uh, right back-to-back like that. So good call there. I'll say the positive for me is obviously Cedric Mullins. I mean, the guy is just looking like an all-star out there. He's in the top 5% in the league and weighted on base per, uh, average. He's running balls down in the outfield. Other than that, I wanted to hit off the fence. It seemed like he played it a little poorly, but he's been – Excellent out there. He's walking more than I remember him ever walking. He's hitting left on left over 500 or around 500. He's just been fantastic. Unfortunately, he's basically the only Oriole that's really getting the hits to fall in other than Mountcastle uh, yesterday in the doubleheader. And Michael Franco is getting getting some hits here and there. But uh, my low light would have to be Trey Mancini. And not because he's not hitting the ball hard, because he is in the 90th percentile and Max uh, exit velocity, he's barreling the ball almost 13% of the time, but you can just see the frustration. He's hitting into double plays. He's hitting balls hard just right at people, and he is not taking kindly to that, so I feel bad for him. Yeah, I will say Mancini, and this was probably my positive, was seeing him get that first home run last weekend, Um, but hopefully we start to see the bat come around overall. Um, and that should happen soon. Um, and as you guys said, Ryan Malcastle seems to be adjusting to the breaking balls now. I know there's still a lot of concerns about his defense, but, you know, is Chris Stoner uh, over at the warehouse and the owner of Baltimore Sports and Life says, you know, maybe not too big of a concern if you see him as a first baseman long term. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. And then Dean Kramer, you know, kind of mixed results so far. But it, I think the key for him, and we've talked about this a lot, is going to be getting those first pitch strikes. If he can start getting ahead and account more, I think we're really going to see him turn a corner um, as the season goes on. Yeah, that's still non-existent for him in that last outing, which is – it stinks because when he does get ahead, that curveball becomes a weapon, and he's so much fun to see. But he's falling behind 1-0, 2 to just about every hitter. Uh, it's tough to watch sometimes, but he'll figure it out. Yeah, I'm still pretty high on him overall. I mean, he's getting the strikeouts. He still has what look like above average pitches all around. So just got to throw them strikes, like you said. So on that note, I'll introduce our guest for this episode, uh, for this edition of On the Verge. Um, he is the resident uh, draft expert at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. You can see some of his work on there previewing the 2021 MLB draft. He also previously worked as an analyst in baseball research and development for the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, in addition to reading his articles on the site, you can also hear him as a co-host, along with Chris Stoner and Matt Corey on The Warehouse, a fellow podcast um, here on Baltimore Sports and Life Radio Network. He is Dr. Stephen Loftus. Uh, Stephen, uh, we're glad to have you back on. Thank you for joining us tonight. It's good to be here. It's good to really start talking about the draft. As you all know, this is my area. And so things are starting to heat up in that area. We're halfway through it all. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, just talking about it with you all for the next well, however long it takes. Well, uh, yeah, we'll uh, have a lot of discussion tonight, and I'm sure that between now and July, we're going to have you on the show again. But just to start off, um, 
How is the pandemic affecting the uh, lead up to this year's draft in both uh, college and high school levels? So I think it's going to be affecting the high school levels a bit more. I mean, we lost a lot of high-profile showcases, a lot of high-profile bats that weren't able to travel and arms that weren't able to travel from, say, California for East Coast Pro and stuff like that. We lost the National High School Invitational, usually held in Cary in March. So, and even beyond that, just individual school districts, individual areas, not necessarily playing as extensive of a season. And high school players don't have the benefit that college guys have with data. I mean, college guys, even if we're not getting as many cross-conference uh, matchups, early season tournaments, things like that, the data is still there for them. The uh, pitch FX type of data, the exit below data, all of that is still there, even if it's maybe, I, I don't want to say less reliable, but even if there isn't as much of it there for us to rely on. So it makes making really uh, concrete decisions really difficult. From a modeling perspective, from my point of view, there's a lot more variability in the possible outcomes. So there's a lot more variance and it takes a lot longer for players to really start separating themselves from the pack or really advancing up boards. We're going to probably, we're going to mention Jack Leiter at some point or another. Right now he's ninth on the model's output because he only has about 60 collegiate innings. And the way I model things there's more trust, more reliance, the more collegiate innings you have. Usually by this point, he would have, uh, give or take, what, 100, 110 innings. So by the time he gets to that point, he'll, he'll rocket up the boards. But right now, he's going to seem a little bit lower because of how the pandemic has messed with um, like the inputs in my model. So you mentioned Jack Leiter. I mean, let's we're talking about specific players. Let's kind of start there with him and his teammate, Kumar Rocker. Uh, I think for the past year or so, Kumar Rocker has been regarded as the favorite to go 1-1. Uh, for a while now, but do you see that changing with the way Jack Leiter's throwing this year? Uh, and maybe is there someone else that might sneak in as a possible 1-1? One, one? But specifically, what, what are you seeing with Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter right now and their prospects for 1-1? One, one? It With the two of them, it's going to be a 1-1-A one, one situation. If a team decides to go the Jordan Lawler route or Marcelo Meyer route, or I suppose someone else, you know, we're only halfway through all this, but if they go someone else, it's really going to be an underslot sort of pick. I think it's either going to be lighter or rocker at one. And it comes down to a certain extent down to uh rockers, just raw stuff versus lighters pitchability. Like you know, lighters got great stuff, but rockers got everything a tick more Whether we're, you know, where we're talking, plus stuff for lighter or you know half plus sort of thing we might be talking plus plus with rocker in terms of just literal raw stuff now rocker does have some questions with command not necessarily control but from a pure command perspective which kind of brings them a little bit back to the pack me i'll almost always bet on just pure raw stuff over command but not by much the fact that lighter has even made it a possibility even made it a discussion is something i wasn't exactly expecting this year i was expecting you know yeah lighter was gonna be a top five guy but i didn't think he would honestly be able to play himself and he's really had to play himself i didn't think he'd be able to play himself into that number one discussion but he has and it's going to really come down to i mean there's a lot of good games remaining for vanderbilt left in the year for the two of them to really and even in just an sec play uh for them to really start trying to separate one from the other plus then there's the you know the college world series playoff sort of uh into things it's gonna. It might come down to the last week, and it might come down to the College World Series. And I would think Vanderbilt probably will be going there with those two arms leading the way. 
but at this moment, if the draft were today, I would still, you know, separate of bonus concerns, separate of underslotting, overslotting. However, I would probably lean rocker, but just by the barest of margins. Uh, follow up to that. Is there any worry about rocker's velocity the last couple of weeks? I know he's been down sitting between 90 and 93, whereas before he's been mid to upper 90s. I'm not worried yet. You know, if it keeps on going, yeah, there. You know, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt might uh, pull him for a few weeks. You know, make sure, give him the medical end of things. But teams are going to have that information. I mean, you know, top fifty or so uh, players usually have their medicals sent around to all the various teams, and that's where you start seeing things, especially with you know a pitcher that is a power pitcher like Rocker. I mean, pretty much every pitcher is going to have a Tommy John sort of situation. Something go wrong with the UCL at some point or another. So. They're always going to check those medicals. It's going to be a very careful thing. I remember in 2017 with the Rays, uh, we were looking at Drew Rasmussen, who had just come just in like maybe a month before the draft come back from Tommy John. And there was a lot of discussion over those medicals. And if Rocker's velocity still kind of continues to be a little on the downside, comparatively speaking, I mean, he's coming from a pretty high place to begin with there. Teams are going to be on top of those medicals, searching through them, having the staff in there, and you know they'll do their due diligence. At the moment, I'm not worried just yet, but that could be the thing that uh, ticks uh, ticks lighter over him at number one. Yeah, so we basically we know the big four, the top four that seem like they're going to go right before the Orioles pick at five, which is Lawler, Lighter, um, Rocker, and Mayer. But according to your model, who are some of the top two or three biggest risers to pay attention to now that we're getting into the heart of conference play? So this is a this is a really interesting spot because there's a so in my view there is that top four tier you know the two Vanderbilt guys and two high school shortstops and that's going to really that's what teams love big arms high school shortstops with a lot of room to grow. After that, there's a lot of variations that the Orioles can go off of. And the thing is, a lot of them are routes that the Orioles haven't really pursued in the past. You know, the last few years, we start thinking about, you know, corner bats, especially corner outfield, a lot of power. Who cares about strikeouts to a, a certain extent? But that guy really isn't quite there. I mean, we'll probably talk about Sal Frelick a little bit, but I there's he's, he's cooled down a little bit in the last few weeks. There's a few worries there. The guys that have risen to the top for my model that are right there that are within that sort of range where they could be considered at five are um, Henry Davis, catcher out of Louisville, who has just been on fire and has an incredible cannon for an arm. There are questions about his receiving ability maybe a little bit, but with the way that uh, baseball seems to be going with the, you know, the advent of the robot strike zone, as it were, you know, framing might not be an issue and catcher defense suddenly becomes about blocking and a cannon for an arm. And Davis has that along with a bat that no question can play behind. It can play anywhere, but especially behind the plate. So he's one guy there. Um, Gunnar Hoagland out of uh, Mississippi. He's been the player who's improved his stock the most. I mean, he has rocketed up uh, Baseball America's rankings up about 10 spots since the start of the year. In my model, he's added a full win, 10 runs worth of score. He's, uh, where is he now? He's seventh in my model at this point. Um, and he's striking out guys at an incredible rate and walking, you know, he's matching lighter basically in strikeout rate with about half the walks. I mean, his, he's, we're working a six to one strikeout to walk ratio with Hoagland and He's doing it against that SEC competition. So, but again, that's not a route the Orioles have really taken. Um, 
Another guy that's uh, been a big riser, really interesting to watch because he comes from a smaller conference is the uh, is Sam Bachman. And, you know, he's, I don't want to say he's come out of nowhere, but I mean, the huge jump that he's made, I mean, in my model going from 49th to 17th, I mean, improving by eight, nine runs, that's hard to do in a mid-major sort of setting there because you have to not only uh, you have not only have to perform well, but honestly, you have to dominate that competition because, you know, I do all my adjustments to bring back the kind of mid-conference high performers due to the, you know, strength of schedule into things. But he's continued. After a certain point, you just got to respect the stuff, respect the stats, and Bachman has that. He might have a bit of a ceiling on him just due to that competition and due to that, uh, you know, kind of questions that are going to come with that. But if, I mean... If uh, my sorry, not, I say I said Ohio. Joe rocks from Ohio. He's another riser that's uh, come out there. Miami Bachman's from Miami of Ohio. Um, but if Miami Ohio can get into the uh, you know NCAA tournament, can get into some postseason, and Bachman can really uh, put up that same type of performance against some bigger conferences, that could open a lot of eyes. That could really push him into that next level and into an interesting spot. So there, I mean, there's tons of other risers, but. Those three are three that are really interesting around that number five spot, depending on how the Orioles really want to attack this. And I mean, again, there's just so many routes that they could go because the traditional kind of guy that it seems like they've uh, particularly uh, focused on this year isn't really there. Or in Frelick's case, my model has a few questions about his his numbers and his, uh, his ability to stick in a few places. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. So the one thing I think that is kind of coming together as a consensus a little bit seems to be that in some order, the top four prospects are Rocker, Leiter, Lawler, and Mayer. Um, is there any chance that Jordan Lawler or Marcelo Mayer fall to the number five spot for the Orioles? There's a chance. Um, it, if the draft were today, I'd give it maybe about like a 33, 40% chance if they fall it's probably going to be for similar sort of reasons that the Orioles might pass on them. The whole underslot question, because if they fall to five, they're not going to take a discount. They're, they're just not. And so that would require um, Elias and them to pay up possibly overslot for the Orioles, which has not been a route that they've traditionally gone. Now, um, you know, there's lots of discussions, lots of thoughts about if Elias, and Majal are really going to go that overslot route or would even consider it just based on past history, both with the Orioles and the Astros. But in general, Elias and Majal are going, I have confidence that they will make the quote unquote right pick. If they'll right pick based on what their model says, what they think they can build later on, what they can put together later in the draft. If the right pick is to overslot, they'll go overslot. If the right pick is to take a pitcher, probably more likely a collegiate pitcher. High school pitchers are just incredibly risky and pretty much any model is going to really knock them back. Um, But if it's a pitcher, they'll take a pitcher. I trust them to make the right pick. And so again, there's a chance that Lawler and Mayer, one or the other falls to the Orioles. If it's Lawler, I think there's a uh, higher chance that they would actually take a shot at that. But even if they do fall, it's going to be a real, real tough question. I mean, for me, my model has the has both Lawler and Mayer as the number one and two. The model loves high school shortstops, especially high school shortstops who can hit, 
which is the uh, book, especially on Lawler, and assuming they can stick at shortstop. And they both have the tools, no question, to stick at shortstop. Um, the um, Right now, the model likes Mayer just a tick more, but honestly, it's there's enough variability that you could go either one and the model would be fine with that sort of thing. Just one quick follow-up question to that is, would the fact that they're high school prospects maybe make the Orioles pause because that timeline for contention could conceivably be within the next two years? I've thought about that. That That's something that I brought up actually uh, last week on The Warehouse, where the high school shortstop or any high school pick is probably on a different timeline. And that's a valid question, but I don't think it would really drive them away. It would have to be literally the third or fourth tiebreaker basically for them to push that away because you could also look at the same sort of thing if the Orioles start contending in the window at the next you know three years maybe hopefully cross fingers um then Lawler or Mayer could be the type of guy that continues that window as they're having to make harder decisions on free agency on guys that you know, started out in that contending window, but now are moving on or getting too expensive or things like that. So there are multiple different ways that you can go on it. I don't think it would drive them away necessarily unless they were just really picking nits at that point. Is a guy like Brady House in the same stratosphere as those two, or is he a step below? Step below, but the high school shortstops, the top of the high school shortstops this year is incredibly strong. I mean, there's five projected in the first round between Lawler and Meyer, you know, right at the top, Brady House and Khalil Watson. So there's, um, I, I was, you know, taking a look at videos on YouTube today, just looking over, uh, looking over the guys before in preparation for today's podcast. And Khalil Wilson has just incredibly fast hands, incredible bat speed. And he hit just an absolute monster of a home run, turning on an inside pitch, on the from the left side just you know pulling it out to right field beautiful beautiful swing and he generated incredible amount of pop i mean uh say did i say wilson or watson (laughs) all these names are starting to run together i think it's khalil (laughs) watson um khalil watson um he's like he's five nine but that bat speed you know is able to so much make up for the lack of you know traditional power size that you expect to see there so the two of them, and then Isaac Pacheco is further on down in the twenties. But you know, we're looking at like a six four two ten type of guy, big, big, pretty left-handed swing. There are a couple of good left-handed bats at shortstop this year. That again, not the same stratosphere as Lawler and Meyer, but incredible talents. And the teams that get them that decide to go that high school route are going to get a lot of bang for their buck, no matter where they pick those guys, especially if they can continue to uh, move along as the season's going on. Brady house, there are going to be some questions because it's of all of those guys. He's the one that there's the question. If he'll stay at short, there's a little bit more thought that he's going to move off it to third, but I mean, he comes with set with possible future 70 power. So, you know, who can complain about that? If he does move off short, I mean, like that'll play a third, that'll absolutely play a third. I think that was a pretty good recap of the high school guys. I mean, I, I think I've had a chance to watch at least once most of the guys like the top 100, the college players, but it's good to get info on the high school guys. And I just want to shout out at Locked on Orioles who asked kind of about, I hope, I think you answered a lot of these questions that we got from, from some of our Twitter followers, but Locked on Orioles who asked which high school players we targeted this year. A lot of great shortstops there. 
Um, are there any other high school names out there that you see going in that first round uh, or maybe is, is maybe early round targets for the Orioles? So it's going to be real tough. I don't necessarily see the Orioles going high school unless Lawler or Meyer falls, or if someone does make a jump later on, there's still a lot of other first round names that aren't necessarily shortstops. There are a few pitchers in the, uh, like, you know, 15 to 20 range. Uh, let's see. Um, one of them's a, let's see, who is it? Uh, Bubba Chandler is a, uh, Clemson recruit, uh, for football and baseball. So he'd be a uh, hard sign, but he's been a huge riser. He's moved up 70 spots in baseball America's latest ranking updates and has similarly moved way on up the model, but he's a pitcher. So there's obviously questions there. Uh, high school catching is surprisingly, uh, surprisingly deep this year. There are a couple of guys ranked in the back end of the first round and I mean, high school catchers. One of them's a guy who's got like 65, 70 sort of speed, which for a catcher, I mean, that'll play, I mean, you could move him out to center field with that sort of speed, assuming he's able to read the ball. But the only guy that could be interesting and I've thought a little bit about him now and, now and again is uh, James Wood. So corner outfield guy, or at least I, I tend to think he's going to wind out in the corner outfield. But I mean, huge dude, like 6'6", 230-ish, give or take, a lot of power. There's a bit of swing and miss in the game that's generally, of course, going to come with the power. But he moves fairly well. And there's a thought that he might be able to stick in center field. And if you got a six six power hitter, power hitting center field who moves like you know, we're not talking seventy grade speed or anything, but we're looking, let's see, a six seven sixty yard dash. So I mean, that's I say that's well above average speeds. You know, fifty five maybe you know push it to sixty depending. But if that can stick in center field, that's an incredibly elite talent. So right now he's just outside the top ten. He started uh, the season ranked in the top ten by Baseball America. The model loves especially, uh, you know, physically mature high school guys, no matter where they are on the field. But if he can stick in center field, that's one other guy that could be interesting. The swing and miss is a little worrisome, which is, again, why I don't necessarily see the Orioles jumping on a player like that unless he really goes, is willing to go for an underslot. But he's probably the other high school guy besides, um, you know, the shortstops that could possibly go in the top 10. So let's switch gears to the college level and let's talk about South Relic. Uh, I think he's a guy that I've been hearing a lot more of, maybe just in preparation for the show, I've been noticing the name more, but um, he seems to be a guy I know MLB Pipeline talked about him a lot recently saying, you know, because of a lot of the college bats seem to be not producing as well, maybe so far this year, but Frelick did have that hot start. So maybe you see him rise up the draft boards a little bit. You know, is Sal Frelick a guy, outfielder out of Boston College, for, for anyone that may not know, um, is he a guy that the Orioles would look at as far as like saving a little bit of money there? Or is he going to cost about, you know, that bonus slot money? Is this a guy that the Orioles should target with the number five pick? I would give him a look. I, w- I would absolutely give him a look. He might have played himself out of the, assuming the Orioles want to go that under slot route. Like if they're willing to pay slot, I think it'd be fine. But if they're trying to go under really save money, he might've played himself out of that. Like he's moved up to six in baseball America. My model's not as high on him because he's cooled down. So literally in the last two weeks, he's gone like six for 29 with only a single extra base hit. And that's not going to look good. Like that doesn't play particularly. And that's really reined him in. I mean, heck one week ago, I'm pretty sure I had him. So right now the model has him 24th a week ago when I uh, did the first update of the model since the preseason I think I had him about 16th. So just that two week span really knocked him back a lot, but a lot can change obviously in a two week span. If he's able to get back up there, 
he's a guy that I'd consider. I mean, he's most likely going to stick in center field. He's got more power than his size would necessarily. Again, he's 5'9", 180 ish, give or take. Um, and he's got a lot more power than you would necessarily expect. He's got some speed. He's got a little bit, little bit of pop. He can definitely play in center field. Again, up the middle, if you can get a little, if you can get a little bit of pop, some power, and decent defense in center field, sure, that's absolutely a top ten sort of pick and a type of guy that the Orioles can absolutely work with, especially given the many options. But again, with those many options, if there isn't a standout player, if the Orioles don't see a standout player, go for the guy that will you know, provide you the most amount of uh, cost benefit sort of thing. You know, the guy that can give you that same sort of level of expected production, but, you know, take 800,000, a million less necessarily. And I'm not sure if Frelick's going to be that guy, especially if he continues to produce. Yes. And he's, uh, he's making, I was looking at some of his numbers earlier today too, and 49 walks to just 37 strikeouts and 84 career games is, is pretty Im- Pretty impressive. I, I like that. That would no be a question. switch for the Orioles. Agreed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would look good in our lineup right about now. Um, Amen. <laughs> we talk a lot about Elias uh, being a big fan of up-the-middle college bats from major conferences. Is there enough sample size to really get a read on this front office's draft strategy? So it's really interesting. From the perspective of up-the-middle major conference bat, there certainly is enough sample size because, frankly, Everyone loves that. Everyone loves the up the middle guy because of the defensive spectrum. If you got the guy that can play shortstop, he can move to second base, third base as need be, assuming that, you know, the bat plays center field. If the bat is good enough, but they really can't stick it in center center field, you know, move them to the corners as long as the bat can play. And, you know, major conferences, of course, like that's where you're going to see the best collection of talent. Those guys are going to go to the Cape. They're going to go to the Northwoods League. They're going to go to those major summer leagues and they're going to see that elite competition. So there is a certain level of trust there with those big conference bats. So yeah, there's enough sample size for that. What there isn't enough sample size really to see at this point is deviations from that. Because again, everyone loves that sort of end of things, you know. Over the years, Cleveland has been known to love young guys. You know, they are a model driven team. They do an excellent job with it for the most part. But one of the key things that people have noticed is young guys. Well, I mean, everyone's on that same sort of track, but Cleveland takes it to an even more extent. Orioles, same sort of thing. They like young guys. They like major conference power bats. Everyone does, but we don't have enough information to really see where the deviations are. The closest really to it is their lack of worry about strikeouts, I guess you could say. Like, you know, they lean power, they lean, I would say they tend to lean power over hit. And again, up to a certain extent, don't worry about the strikeouts. So that's the only sample size that we really have some interest, some uh, indication on. And it not only extends to college, but I think it extends to high school too. If you look at like Kobe Mayo from last year, big power, not as advanced of a hit tool and probably will strike out a fair bit, but they're not concerned about that makes a lot of sense uh we also had a question from twitter from at pdubs 80 who said based on elias and six draft history and reliance on their own draft model which players in the draft best fit the model darling quote-unquote moniker that would be likely picks at number five if about available and even throughout the top few rounds and he does note that the o's have four of the top 76 picks okay so generally speaking again it seems like the orioles you know power over hit Strikeouts, not a big worry. Ideally, yeah, up the middle. And 
if it's cl- if it's college, major conference bats. So you know, from my perspective, like in my model's case, you know, I like similar sort of things. You know, physically mature high school guys. So you think guys like you know James Wood, like Brady House. You like young players like you know Judd Fabian's a big name that's been mocked to the Orioles several times. If he was having a better year, I would be pretty heavily in on him as the Orioles pick. Not necessarily because I'm as big on him, but because I think that matches the Orioles' profile. But I mean, you know, Judd Fabian's, let's see, on draft day, he's going to be still 20 and about uh, 10 months, give or take. He's not going to turn 21 until around August, I want to say. And again, power performance is another big one. So this is one guy that I know, you know, in the questions that y'all sent me to kind of prep, Colton Kowser is one of those big power performers, both in terms of, um, you know, from from batter's perspective, power in terms of ISO, and then pitchers, you know, what we see, high strikeout type of guys. So Colton Kowser, uh, Luca Tresh, again, I've mentioned a lot of catchers. It's a decent year for catchers, kind of surprisingly, but um, Colton Kowser, Luca Tresh, Wes Clark, all of those are big bats. But really, you know, kind of pick by pick per se, round one, like everyone's on the table. I mean, Davis, Kowser, all the college pitching, Brady, everyone's on the table on that one at this point because there isn't, you know, Honestly, because Judd Fabian has kind of fallen back a little bit. Kowser's kind of the closest one to fitting that profile, but there are going to be some questions again about that sort of uh, mid-major sort of uh, competition. Round two, last few years, it's been an infielder, someone on the dirt, middle infielder. He's not a middle infielder, but Zach Galoff out of uh, University of Virginia is kind of an interesting guy there. He's been on the rise, you know, most... uh, scouting services have them right you know in the 30s maybe upper 20s my model likes them right around that same range give or take so he's a guy that could be really interesting in round two and the comp b round three sort of thing um this is where you could start seeing a couple of pitchers maybe there's a lot i mean honestly there's a lot of prep bats out there if they want to go high school there's honestly too many options to really narrow it down this year it's so deep in college pitching they could pretty much go all sorts of routes um in terms of like you know High strikeout pitchers, Will Bedner, Sean Burke. Uh, Burke's out of uh, Maryland at that, I believe. Um, you know, all these guys are, you know, big strikeout guys that would seem to play well in a model. One guy that's kind of fallen off the wayside that I still sort of believe in as a possible Orioles guy is Cody Morissette at a Boston College shortstop. You know, fits that big conference, middle infielder type. He doesn't have any standout tools, which is kind of the difference between him and some of the uh, previous guys. But he's he's the type of guy that's got all 50s and 55s across the board and kind of tends to uh, get more out of his tools than you'd expect. He's had a rough year this year. He started to turn it around the last couple of weeks. Um, he's striking out a bit more. I tried to find video on him last year and this year to see if he possibly changed his swing any, but I couldn't really get any good angles to really dig into that. But if his strikeouts weren't up so much, he'd be putting the same sort of, you know, batting 330 with about a 200 ISO. So um, up there. So, I mean, he's got to come back a little bit, but he's a guy that if he's there in the 50s and he's, you know, turned things a little bit around this year and not batting 240, which is about where he is now, 260. If he turns that around, he's a guy that I could see also in that round two range as being a, maybe not a model darling, but one that kind of follows the, Orioles pension, especially around that round two, 30, 40, 45 range sort of thing. So we have another question from Twitter at Orioles tweets. Do you think Elias and Sieg employ a similar draft philosophy with the O's as they did with the Astros? And then um, at Orioles tweets goes on to elaborate. My impression is they were burned so badly by Appel and Aiken and had such success with Bregman and Correa that I have a hard time seeing them pick a pitcher with a high draft pick. 
So what are your thoughts there? Do you think that that's uh, something to be said for that? Uh, to a certain extent. I think I, I agree that it's probably less likely that they would pick a pitcher with a high pick, but I don't really think it has anything or as much necessarily to do with being burned by Appel and Aiken. So really trying in, in some ways, I sometimes think we look at the Astros too much to try to glean too much information on Elias and Majal's past. I mean, it's kind of like, cause every ownership situation is different. It would be like with the current, uh, Houston GM, you know, James click, my former boss down with the Rays, trying to understand what he's going to do there based on his time in Tampa Bay. The ownership situation there is different. The resources there are going to be different, not only financial, but also data resources. The, extent to which there is scouting and analytic cooperation is going to be different. And while the GM can, yes, drive that discussion, there are always going to be outside voices that they didn't necessarily bring in, sometimes from ownership, sometimes from coaching staff, that are going to really complicate the kind of driving end of things. So, But let's look back at the Astros, what they did. So a lot of the Astros trends were mimicked or mirrored, mimicked is the wrong term, were mirrored, were seen at the same time by a lot of different organizations, the Cubs, the Rays, the Dodgers. A lot of these teams kind of went on that same sort of roots. Cleveland's another one as well, like focusing on bats because bats, generally speaking, are going to put up more value, especially college bats where we have more information up the middle, you know, downplaying, uh, let's see, uh, downplaying just arms in general at the top focusing on age, all of this are things that a lot of the analytically forward organizations tended to do. And at this point, it's pretty consistent across the board. So again, I don't necessarily think that looking at Houston specifically is going to give us too much information. Like the thing that the Astros were kind of more ahead of the curve on or ahead of the mindset on was the whole idea of the underslot and using that and pushing that down, uh, pushing that money down the lines and spreading it out. But every organization is now in on that. So again, I think we look a little bit too much at the Astros and really should look a bit more at overall baseball trends as a whole, especially among the more analytically forward organizations. But again, I said this earlier, I trust Elias to make the right pick. Two years ago, when Adley Rutschman was up there at the top, they didn't mess around with that. They didn't think about underslotting. They took the best player. So if Rocker or Lighter, for some reason, you know, didn't have arm trouble, say Rocker's velocity comes back, continues to put up numbers, if Lighter continues to put up numbers and they fall to five, there's going to be a lot of discussion there because at that point, you know, there is less idea, um, you know, pitcher value is a harder thing to quantify, a less consistent thing. Rocker and Lighter are still going to want big money in that sort of way. So the discussion really gets interesting there, whether you then go for an underslot, spread the money around, or do you go for the best player available like that mindset usually is? And But it's not going to be because um, Carlos Correa turned out well in Houston or because um, Appel and Aiken fell apart. It's going to be because it's ultimately the quote-unquote right pick based on overarching overall trends that pretty much the majority of analytically forward teams will be working off of. So there is some of that, uh, you know, look at the Astros, but in doing so, I think we're focusing too much look on baseball as a whole. So again, it's not, a, we can get some information there, but again, I just trust them to make the right pick, whether that's an overslot, an underslot, a pitcher, or 
taking Henry Davis as catcher, even if we have Adley Rutschman, the best catcher that we've seen in, you know, best young catcher that we've seen in a long, long time. If that's the right pick, they'll do it. So that pretty much answers Jason's uh, question here. Will the Orioles draft the best available guy or just draft for need? And I think they're going to draft the best available guy. Best available with the, um, with the uh, note that, cost considerations come into play. Like, you know, course, not, yeah. I don't think they're going to be drafting for need, not, not, but you don't do that in baseball. You don't draft for need because even the best players are three years down the line and who knows what you're going to need in three years, but yeah, much closer to the best player available. So I wanted to uh, talk about Gunnar Hoagland for a minute because he was someone you mentioned early in the show as someone as a riser. You talked about him last week on Baltimore sports and if I'm thinking that this is the year that the Orioles buck the recent trend under Mike Elias and they take a pitcher with that first pick, is Hoagland a guy I should be looking at? Absolutely. Like, he, he brings so much that you really want to see. Like, you know, he's got a starting pitcher's frame. We're looking 6'4", 220. That type, of, that type of body can stick up to all of the, you know, the starter workload, even maybe, you know, the, there's the whole old school starter workload and, you know, who knows what starters are going to look like or what major league baseball is going to um, rule and legislate. I mean, I don't know if you all saw recently the whole idea of possibly the, uh, um, the double hook, the whole thing of when you pull your starting pitcher, you lose the DH and that could maybe mess with how teams value starting pitchers. But Hoagland can stand up to a starters workload in today's baseball. And I think, you know, down the line as well. Now, as you know, he brings up the stats like he, he strikes out. He's striking around forty percent of guys, walks a little under ten percent. So like he's putting up a great strikeout to walk ratio. He's even seen a slight um, tick up in a slight tick up in velocity this year. Like uh, before the year, they were talking like topping out at ninety three. Most of the guns that I've seen him at, you know, we're not topping out, working at ninety three, topping out at ninety five, ninety six. Most of the guns I've seen him this year have them, you know, working around 94, 95, topping out still again, 96. I think I've seen 97 once, give or take. Um, He's got a 55 slider, but really he gets a lot of strikeouts, a lot of swing and miss off of his fastball, which is pretty impressive considering it's not like a hundred mile an hour thing. Like it's got good movement, good ride. It has all that you'd want to see out of a starter's fastball. He compliments it well with that slider. You know, he'd fit in well in the system, no question. From a player development perspective, because any pitcher, especially pitchers, in my opinion, come in needing a lot of care from the player development point of view. So from player development, if we can add a little bit more velo consistently, like he's seen a tick up again, 90, I say 93, 94, 95 is most of his working stuff. If that could become more consistent, that'd be great. Um, Tighten up the slider just a bit and really key one is developing a changeup, not to be an out pitch or anything like that, but be a legitimate third offering to make batters respect the fastball even more than they already do. So he's a guy that could absolutely fit in the system. And he's a guy that assuming he's willing to go for the right price could be a good guy for the Orioles to really kind of focus in on, assuming they're willing to admittedly take on the risk of the lower production that pitchers generically have. And the, uh, extra injury risk that is just ever present with pitchers. So we'll go from SEC pitcher to mid-major bat. And let's talk about Colton Cowser. You mentioned him earlier. Looking at some of his numbers now, for people who may not know, Sam Houston State outfielder. Right now he's hitting 351, 12 home runs. Again, more walks and strikeouts. You'd love to see that. 24 walks, 23 strikeouts. Uh, but 
a 6'3 lefty at the Southland Conference. I know it's not a baseball powerhouse, uh, so those those numbers take them with a, grain, a little bit of a grain of salt there. The more I read about Kowser, uh, I see a lot of, you know, maybe he doesn't really have that line or he has more of a line drive swing instead of a home run swing. Uh, and maybe he probably doesn't stick at center field or you probably have to move him off the position there. The arm may not be as good based on some of the things that I've seen. I haven't watched him play. He, I think he's the top prospect. I have not watched anything on yet. So that's just all reading what, what I see from other people who are a lot smarter than me. But he's the guy that I'm most fascinated with at this point, maybe because I haven't seen him. Um, I guess what are your general thoughts on, on Kowser as being a possible option within that you know, top five, top six range? Five would be tough. And not because he doesn't necessarily have the talent. I mean, you know, he's got enough speed. I think, I think he can cover center field. I think, you know, I don't think he'd be a gold glove guy um, or even necessarily an incredibly above average, but I think he could turn in an average center field. He has decent enough roots from all the reports and enough speed to make it work. He's got, you know, solid power, even, you know, he's raked in, as you said, he's raked in the Southland conference, but like, even when you adjust for the fact that it's the Southland conference, he's still one of my uh, top guys in terms of adjusted ISO and, you know, adjusting it for competition, adjusting it for, um, ballpark that sort of thing he still is one of those top guys so the challenge is again kind of the ceiling the ceiling that the mid-major conferences really bring in a sense from a from a modeling perspective from a statistical po- uh, point of view right now uh let's see model has him at where is he right now i know he's okay he's oh he's higher than i thought he's had a good last week i did a little adjustment on the model um I had him as a pure corner outfielder and made a little adjustment saying that he does have a chance of sticking in center field that moved him up from like, I want to say low twenties to he's now 11th in the model. So the model loves that power, loves that ability, or at least that chance to stick in center field. And assuming if he can stick in center field, again, he's the type of guy that brings all you could want in a center field and more, you know, solid enough defense, a decent hit tool, not quite uh, plus power, but, you know, above average power, you know, 55, something like that. And again, all of that at a premium position. So to really get into that number five discussion, unless he is just willing to take an insane cut and the uh, Orioles don't necessarily think he's too much of a downgrade in production talent, however you want to call it. Assuming those two things, he's going to have to He's going to have to continue to perform. He's going to have to continue to hit at this incredibly hot rate. And he might need a little help. He might need a little help from a couple of pitchers, not even necessarily falling, but not, you know, he's going to need uh, uh, Jordan Wicks to not just continue to just knock it out of the park. He's going to need Adrian Del Castillo to kind of falter just a little bit. He's going to need that little bit of help to really push him into that true number five overall discussion in my opinion just because there's unless you know some you know all things being equal there's going to be some questions about that mid-major conference uh, profile all right so um at ben underscore underscore the worst uh had a question the same law along the same lines as uh as i do right here which is despite the injuries and missed time while at lsu is Jaden Hill still someone worth targeting in the second round or so if he's still around? If he's still around, yeah, sure. Like he's looked horrible this year. He, he he did not look good in his last few starts. No question. But surprise, there's the Tommy John issue. And I mean, who would look good with a Tommy John issue sort of coming up? It's the type of thing that when you look at 
performance and stats after, okay, he's tore his UCL or something like that. It's like, ah, it all makes sense. He's absolutely a guy that if he was available in that second round pick, absolutely start paying attention to him right there. If he was willing to sign, he's the type of guy that, you know, he had top five stuff. He was a number, you know, top five overall ranked guy coming into the year. And had he continued at this pace, he would, you know, maybe not be at the same tier as, you know, continue at the pace that his stuff at least uh, suggests, maybe not in the same tier as rocker and lighter, but right there. And so asking him to take number 40 money is a tough ask when he absolutely could recover, come back and uh, regain his status at that top 10 pick. Cause I mean, he might, some, some people think he has the best, like pure stuff in the draft. And, you know, yes, there were concerns. He, you know, went into the bullpen last year. There's question about, can he handle the workload, especially now after the Tommy John into things, but he, I mean, he's got a starters build. He's, he's got plus secondaries. He's got everything you'd want from a front line, um, you know, top one, number one, number two starter. And getting him to take a discount at number 40 might be really tough. I don't tend to think he's going to make it there. I tend to think he will. Someone will take a shot at him in the first round, you know, late first round, somewhere in the 20s, because the stuff, the talent is hard, would be hard to overlook, even with the questions that come with it. So I don't think he's there, but if he's there at 40 and he's shown, you know, because teams talk to players, teams have an idea of what players are asking when they make that pick. If he shows any indication to just wanting to get signed by a major league organization, getting that process started, getting on, you know, a good medical staff to help with the rehab, help redevelop all that. And he's willing to take that pay cut and he's there in that second round pick or else should absolutely look at him. No question. Full stop. So let me follow up real quick on Jaden Hill. Um, for a number of years, because I worked for the Washington Nationals for a while, and for a number of years, the Nationals were the organization that was willing to take the gamble on the guy who was high ceiling coming off the Tommy John surgery. Um, and they did that with Lucas Giolito. They did that with Matt Perk. Um, they've taken their chances. Is there a team that's kind of in that mold that you could see taking a chance on Hill somewhere in the late teens or the 20s this year? Uh, late teens. Who's in the late teens? Uh, I, you know, I'm so focused on the Orioles these days that, uh, let's see, draft. Not, I don't care if the NFL draft is in a week. I want the MLB draft order. <laughs> um, let's see. First round here. Late teens. We've got... Blue Jays, Marlins, maybe. Hmm. That, that might be interesting. The Marlins might be interesting. Blue Jays. I could see the Yankees. I could, see, I could really see the Yankees taking that shot. You know, just from the high upside ceiling point of view, I, I the Yankees are sticking in my mind on that one. That I say as much as I hate to say it, um, that seems that seems like an organization that would be willing to take that risk because we've seen so many pitchers be able to come back from Tommy John. Maybe it's a little bit, you know, maybe their stuff's back a little bit. You know, maybe Jordan Hill isn't all plus secondaries. Maybe he's down to a plus and an above average. But still, as long as he can keep the velocity and you know. We've seen pitchers, you know, do fine regaining velocity. Assuming that he could absolutely come back and be fine, so yeah, I th- I think the Yankees might be one of those organizations that could take that shot in again in that teen sort of range. Assuming he's willing to take the pay cut, which I would question. Like he has so much stuff, and it's and I think he can come back next year and really establish himself as a top ten pick if he does come back. Yeah, Yankees or Dodgers will take him. He'll get completely healthy and be an ace. Exactly. <laughs> 
I just want to hear what the Ben McDonald broadcast after the Orioles do take Jaden Hill. <laughs> oh, yeah, he'd be psyched. I'm, That'd I'm be excited. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about Baseball America's latest mock draft. They had the Orioles taking in Miami's Adrian Del Castillo, you know, a catcher. Uh, you highlighted Louisville's Henry Davis in your recent article at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Uh, you know, I like the on-base ability of Del Castillo. I like the bat, the defensive versatility. Uh, it's easy to fall in love with Davis's bat when you watch him play. Uh, but I think just for Orioles fans who see catcher next to a potential pick, and maybe especially as we get closer to draft time, if Del Castillo is still being mocked there, if Davis is mocked there, Luca Tresh might be mocked there. Uh, what would you say to Orioles fans who raise their hand and say, excuse me, we do have Adley Rutschman. Uh, what are these guys going to bring to the organization and why would the Orioles target uh, a guy like this in the first round? I mean, sometimes you just got to take the best player. You really do just with how much uncertainty there is in baseball and catcher, especially, you know, other than pitchers, catchers are going to be just the toughest to a project how they're going to do. They sometimes take longer to develop even top, even, you know, highly rated prospects. They get to the majors, takes a few years for them to really get their feet under them. Now, again, Rutschman's possibly the best catcher we've seen in a dozen years, if not longer, but Catcher, I've heard so many times referred to as by writers, or maybe this is back in the day, or referred to as the Dorian Gray position. Like you look 20, but inside you're 150 sort of thing. Like you age so, so fast. Maybe that's going to, again, maybe that's going to change somehow with the new rules about how the strike zone is developed. Maybe they decide to mess with the catcher's box somehow in some way of, you know, I, I don't know how it would necessarily, you know, increase offense, but they're really looking at anything these days. So maybe they mess with that somehow. And I mean, at some point you need depth and you just can't look, you can't turn away from the talent that is there. Like you, 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 this is baseball. You don't draft for need. You draft for talent. You draft for what you think you can develop. And if you think Davis's bat is special enough to play at other places other than catcher, you know, you draft it. If you think Del Castillo um, from an odd base perspective is going to be a lineup asset and you know, he comes at the right price, you take a shot at it. And again, I trust lies to make the right pick and it could be, that that right pick is a catcher. That's a good answer. Uh, do we hold out any hope that Jordan Wicks with his changeup or Sam Bachman with his high quality stuff and 100 mile an hour fastball make it out of the first round? No, no. I would love it. I would love to see it. I would. Something would have to go wrong, <laughs> and at that point, then you'd have to start questioning why did things go wrong. Like again. The, the whole second half of them would just have to go horrible. Like they're both right now, possibly top 10 picks. You know, maybe you draft them at five and an underslide if you want to go that route, but you know, they're both impressive pitchers. They both have things. That I, uh, I love a pitcher with a good changeup, especially a lefty with a good changeup. Like, and so, I mean, like Jordan Wicks is a guy that I wouldn't mind at five necessarily assuming that you're going for that cost savings route. But no way they make it again, unless something goes horribly wrong, in which case you have to start maybe asking why no chance they make it to the second round. All right, as a follow up, who are some of the smaller school pitchers out there that we could pay attention to seeing as so far when Elias does go with pitching, he seems to dig deep a little bit, uh, as in Griffin McElarty in 2019. Okay, so this is actually a decent year for you know small school pitching, and you could small school is kind of hard to define these days. Sometimes it feels like you know small school is anything outside of the SEC and ACC at times. Um, but so there are a couple of UC Santa Barbara guys that uh, interest me. Um, so 
let's see, uh, Michael McCreevy is kind of, again, I don't know how much you consider UC Santa Barbara, you know, a small school there. They've had, they've had their successes, but let, let's say all, out of the uh, traditional Southeast power conference track. And um, especially, you know, on the East coast, or at least I'm on the East coast here, um, you might not see as much uh, big West baseball. So, you know, Michael McCreevy, ranked in the fifties, give or take, uh, and his, uh, model scores much higher than that. Uh, Rodney Boone, his teammate, uh, I want to say baseball America has him in like the two twenties. Um, my, my model score has him around like 85th. And the reason why he's a performer, he's a college performer that, uh, he kind of falls into the crafty lefty, you know, not, not a big fastball, not big stuff, but a lot of pitch ability there. And that works well in college. And it's the type of thing that I could see the player development staff for the Orioles really kind of building on. Um, let's see who else we got in the kind of small school. Uh, Matt, uh, let's see, Matt Mikulski out of Fordham lefty. I have a thing for left-handed pitchers. I, I don't know why it, it just really interests me. I could never hit him when I was, uh, when I was young. So that might've been, that might be part of it, but um, you know, he's got a four pitch arsenal, you know, curveball flashes plus, and he's got an ERA sub one and striking out uh, 16.3 per nine, like 48% strikeout rate. You know, I mean, Fordham's no, you know, big shakes or anything like that, but eventually at some point you just got to go, got to look at the stuff, look at the numbers and just say, you know, you just got to respect that. So uh, he, he's a guy that could be kind of interesting. He's been moving up uh, baseball America's uh, boards. I want to say, let's see. Um, he's moved up to, he's 125th on baseball America. He's moved up 50 spots. If he keeps on going, you know, he could be an interesting guy possibly at uh, you know, like round, let's see, round three sort of uh, range. If the Orioles want to go that route. So I, oh, go ahead, Bob. Oh, no. I was just uh, saying that was good information. Um, so I know that we've got a good bit of time left uh, between now and the draft, but so far um, to this point, whose draft, uh, draft stock would you say has risen the most and whose has uh, taken the sharpest dive uh, this spring? So risen the most, I, I think it's got to be Luca Tresh catcher North Carolina state. Uh, so, I mean, last year, North NC state had uh, Patrick Bailey behind the plate, you know, draft pick, all that sort of deal. And so Tresh gets behind the plate and Tresh had been mostly functioning kind of as a DH occasionally catching and he, his bat had played at DH fine. And he then comes in and just gets an incredibly hot start to the year, just absolutely raking in the non-conference schedule. He's done all right at catching, and he's got a few pass balls that are a little concerning. Catching about a third of base stealers, you know, Henry Davis is catching half the base stealers, so it's kind of a high bar, but still like a third base, right? That, that's good enough. And he's continued to hit, but he's slowed down a little bit once uh, NC State hit conference play. So that's a little concerning, but from going from a, He's a bat, but can he catch, you know, rank him, you know, like 125th overall sort of thing. He's now a top, he's now a top 25 guy. He's a first round sort of uh, talent possibly even. And now again, he's got to continue this. His recent kind of slowdown in ACC play does have at least me a little concerned if he can actually perform against elite pitching or if he was just feasting on your mid-major types. So he's got to continue to perform if he wants to stay in that first round range, but no one's jumped up more than him. No question fallen off. So I'm going to stay in the ACC here. So Alex Benellis, Louisville third baseman. So at the start of the year before the, you know, as soon as baseball America released their ranking, he was a guy that I thought was, you know, picture perfect for the Orioles, you know, infield guy, you know, maybe he's got to move to first base, but 
there was enough hope that he could stick at third that, you know, you take that shot. Major conference, big bat, some strikeouts. But again, Orioles aren't necessarily concerned about that. He seemed to be the tailor-made guy. He was at the time ranked like ninth overall. Um, and so with the Orioles at five, he seemed like a perfect guy if he stayed in that, you know, nine, 10 range to be the underslot guy that the Orioles would focus on with a power, you know, conference bat, even if it wasn't up the middle, but he's fallen off. Like he just hasn't really performed well. Like, you know, he's still got a 260 ISO. He is still, still hitting with power, but it comes with a 231 batting average. And that's just, that's just too much of a question mark, especially with, you know, Orioles might not care about strikeouts. I do. And, you know, when you're striking out 22% in college and batting, you know, 231, it's, it's just too much of an ask from an ask for me personally, especially when he's not, he's walking at like a 9% rate. If he was walking around 15%, I, I would care less, but there's enough questions with everything else. He, he's gone from a top 10 guy to maybe he slips into the first round at the back end. And he's got to honestly, He's got to perform. He's got to finish the season strong to really be able to stay there because he doesn't have that premium position defensive uh, placement that would possibly paper over some of those problems. Yeah, he was my prediction uh, preseason for the Orioles to take, but maybe we get him in a second round now. Yeah, I mean, I'd be fine with him in the second round. Like, you know, maybe it's the type of thing, you know, get, say, player development is a wonderful thing, but, you know, the draft is just one. It's a large piece of the puzzle, but it's just one piece of the puzzle. Player development can do wonders with players, and maybe player development could, you know, get with them. Maybe there's a change to his swing that they can make. I haven't, I haven't dug too much into his, uh, you know, comparison side by side last year, this year, or well, last year is a bad example because he had an injury. So uh, freshman year when he was, you know, he was only batting like 280, 290, something like that. Not incredible, but you know, 280 and you know. 300 ISO that that'll play 230 and a 260 ISO. That's uh that's, that's a bit tougher. So again, I haven't had the chance to really look side by side, but maybe there's an adjustment that he could make that player development could work with him on. You know, again, I'd be fine with him in second round if he falls that far. Um, assuming again, things don't just crash and burn. So we got another question coming in here. Uh, well, this would be separate discussion, but Jason has an interesting question here. Which is internationally speaking, any names on the Orioles' radar now? Hmm. That Nick. one I'm not sure about. <laughs> That's out of my realm. <laughs> Nick, didn't um, Baseball America tweet something about we were in on a couple guys that were in the top 30 or so? Yeah, I know they had that one piece recently looking at the t- early top 20. I don't think they had their list. That was something Ben Badler put out. I don't okay. think that was something okay. that was that talent. I think he, he followed up the, with a tweet that said, this isn't the talent ranking, but this is kind of how sort of is. It's based on who they were projecting to get the most money next year, and the Orioles are connected to a guy who's 15, 16 right now. I don't know his name off the top of my head. But yeah, I, say, I, just, I just did a little Googling on that one. So they just released their 2021-2022 rankings uh, about eh, a little over a month ago. One guy that uh, the only time the Orioles get mentioned on these uh, on this these in this uh, big board is a guy named uh, Braylon Tavera out of the Dominican. Uh, outfielder, uh, 16-year-old, um, 6'2", 180 center fielder wow uh six four uh sixty six four seven sixty yard dash so that's a that's some plus speed there <laughs> well come on down <laughs> so for those that are listening to this audio recording later are wondering why we're responding to things kind of in real time like that and bob can give a little bit of background here but because we do a live video stream now our listeners can actually ask questions in real time 
Yeah, I mean, every Wednesday around 6.30 most of the time, you know, we will go live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. So if you see us on there, hop on, ask a question, and there's a very good chance we're going to answer it. Yeah, and I think Steven set an on-the-verge record uh, tonight for not just the number of guest appearances, you're now at three, but then for uh, listener questions. Fan interactions, they're showing up for Steve. <laughs> hey, I say I'll take it. I I, I, lo- I I love answering. I love talking about this stuff. I mean, I, I'll be honest. Like before, I started working with the Rays, I had paid attention to the draft a little bit, but it wasn't really an area of focus. At this point, it's my area of baseball that I love digging into, trying to find this sort of stuff. You know, once so you know, I'm a statistics professor in my day job. Once the semester ends in about three weeks, so right now the only People, uh, only players that I got model scores for right now are in Baseball America's top 300. At that point, I'm going to start to, at the end of the semester, I'm going to start digging in to try to figuring out who's uh, eligible that isn't ranked and start trying to dig, you know, into those like, who do we take in the 15th round sort of questions that could be, you know, a small conference performer bat that isn't ranked. You know, I love digging through this stuff and I find it absolutely fascinating. It's one of those areas that have. You know, I don't want to say we, we haven't figured out any part of baseball, but there's been so much focus on hitting, on pitching, you know, especially recently the research in like seam uh seam shifted wake or you know, all that sort of stuff that's come out in the last year. But the draft is still so much of a question mark. You know, once once they kind of dig in that, then we have to get into internet figuring out international end of things, which I mean, who knows on that one. But I love talking about this stuff. I mean, seriously, bring on the questions by all means. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's it's disappointing too. I don't know what your opinion is about this going from forty rounds to twenty rounds now, and it seems like it's we're going to be stuck at twenty rounds at the most moving forward. And I think it's it's kind of disappointing because me going, to, I went to JMU, so small school, right. but they've produced some you know draft picks recently, and it's things for kids like that and those like guys like you seem to be most interested in that. I also enjoy finding those those diamonds in the roughs. Like how many of those guys are we going to miss out on now? And it's yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to be stuck at 20. Because, um, I mean, you figure 20 new players a year, that is one thing that, you know, just a little shy of assuming you drafted entirely for putting together a team. That is one minor league team. So even if they do, you know, even with the proposed cutting down of the minor league systems, all that sort of thing, I think they're going to still up. I don't think we're going to get back to 40. I really don't. I think it'll get to 25 at some point maybe 30, but I think 25 is where it's going to wind out falling in the end. And that that's going to be a major part of the next uh, CBA. I'm sure, you know, all the discussions, well, maybe not a major part. They got too many things to try to iron out others, but it's absolutely going to be a discussion. There's probably one side's going to use that as a, as a bargaining chip and it's going to go back and forth. But I I think they're going to wind up settling on 25. Maybe, maybe the players association could convince them into 30 rounds sort of thing. But uh, I don't think it'd go further than that. And it is a shame. It really is a shame to uh, lessen that pathway, it seems, for especially smaller school guys, you know, the D2 guys, you know, JUCOs out of, you know, out of Florida. That that was something that just absolutely opened my eyes when I got into the race. How many much talent comes out of JUCOs? Like, <sighs> closing off that path really is unfortunate. Yes, there's a lot of uh, questions between now and the draft, but Stephen has really covered a lot of ground tonight. We appreciate him doing that, and I know we're absolutely going to have you on between now and July when the draft takes place. But in the meantime, uh, tell our listeners where they can uh, read and uh, 
listen to your work. Now that you're a uh, co-host here on Baltimore Sports and Life Radio. Yeah, I guess I am. I've what, been doing that, I guess, maybe about six weeks now. Still kind of odd. Um, yeah, so every... Well, we record on Thursday night, but it usually comes out on uh, Fridays, co-host of The Warehouse with Chris Stoner and Matthew Corey. My writing shows up, let's see, at this point of the year, about once a month is when I'll update uh, model scores on Baltimore Sports and Life as we get closer. Once we hit June, I'll start doing probably a couple articles a month. When we hit July, just you know, just start looking on the site every couple of days because I'll have an update with every single bit of new information or you know, digging into the 15th and 20th rounds at that point. Um, but also, this is one thing I need to do ASAP at this point, but uh, so I don't always post my full model output because, you know, getting a list of 300 players is not exactly the best place to put it in an article, but my scores are all posted at uh, Sabermetric Sandlot, which is my own just personal blog where I have uh, the full scores. I'm in the process of trying to get together individual player pages that has, you know, the bio info, their adjusted, um, their adjusted stats, all that sort of thing. That's, again, on my list once the semester ends. But uh, you can find the information there. Sometimes I'll post little updates about, you know, who the risers and fallers are during the week. But um, I guess I better go update that now since people might start looking at in the next 24 hours or so. <laughs> well, we really appreciate your insight. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Stephen. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, um, if you happen to live stream on The Verge when we record, typically Wednesday nights at 6.30 Eastern, uh, you can send in a question while we we're on the air, and whether it's a guest like we had tonight with Steven or if it's just Nick, Bob, and I, uh, we'll try to get your, to your questions on the air. So we'll be back next week with a new episode. In the meantime, be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for the latest articles, um, including Bob's uh, three up, three down piece for this past week, which went up on Monday. Uh, Nick and I will have some stories up there as well in the future, and Stephen will. So be sure to check that out and hop on the message board and also check out our uh, Ravens covers and some of the other general sports covers we have over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. And uh, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. Uh, thank you for listening tonight. For Stephen Loftus, our 